0: CHAPTER I. Loomings. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get the upper hand of me, that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it is high time to get to the sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball." With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon the sword, I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men, in their degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feeling towards the ocean with me. There now is, in your insular city of Manhattos, belted around the wharves as Indian Isles by coral reefs, commerce surrounds it with her surf. Right and left, the streets take you waterward. Its extreme downtown is the Battery, where the noble mole is washed by waves and cooled by breezes, which a few hours previous were out of sight and land. Look at the crowds of water-gazers there. Circumambulate the city of the dreamy Sabbath afternoon. Go from Corlier's Hook to Conus's Slip, and from thence by Whitehall northward. What do you see? Posted like silent sentinels all around the town stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men fixed in ocean reveries. Some leaning against the spiles, some seated among the pier heads, some looking over the bulwarks of ships from China, some high aloft in the rigging as if it were striving to get a better still seaward peep. But these are all landsmen, of weak days pent up in the lath and plaster, tied to counters, nailed to benches, clinched to desks. How then is this? Are the green fields gone? What do they hear? But look, here come some more crowds, pacing straight from the water and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange. Nothing will content them but the extremest limit of the land. Loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice. No, they must get just as nigh the water as possibly can without falling in. And there they stand, miles of them, leagues, inlanders all. They come from the lanes and alleys, streets and avenues north, east, south, and west. Yet here they all unite. Tell me, does the magnetic virtue of the needles of the compasses of all those ships attract them thither? Once more, say, you are in the country, in some high land of lakes. Take almost any path you please, and ten to one it carries you down in a dale and leaves you there by a pool in the stream. There is magic in it. Let the most absent-minded of men be plunged in the deepest reveries. Stand that man on his legs, set his feet a-going, and he will infallibly lead you to water. If water there be in that region, should you ever a-thirst for the great American desert to try this experiment, if your caravan happened to be supplied with a metaphysical professor, yes, as everyone knows, meditation and water are wedded forever. But here's an artist. He desires to paint you the dreamiest, shadiest, quietest, most enchanting bit of romantic landscape in the Valley of Seiko. What is the chief element he employs? There stands his tree, with its hollow trunk, as if a hermit and a crucifix were within. And here sleeps his meadow, and there sleeps his cattle, and up from yonder cottage goes a sleepy smoke. Deep into distant woodlands winds a mazy way, reaching to overlapping spurs of mountains bathed in their hillside blue— but though the picture lies thus tranced, and though his pine tree shakes down its size, like leaves upon the shepherd's head, yet all were vain unless the shepherd's eye were fixed upon the magic stream before him. Go visit the prairies in June, when for scores on scores of miles you waded deep into tiger lilies. What is the one charm wanting? Water. There is not a drop of water there. Were Niagara but a... Cataract of sand, would you travel thousands of miles to see it? Why did the poor poet of Tennessee, upon suddenly receiving two handfuls of silver, deliberate whether to buy him a coat, which he sadly needed, or invest his money in a pedestrian trip to Rockaway Beach? Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him, at some time or another, crazy to go to the sea? Why, upon your first voyage as a passenger, did you yourself feel such a mystical vibration, When first told that you and your ship were now out of sight of land, why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity and own brother of Jove? Surely all this is not without meaning, and still deeper the meaning of the story of Narcissus, who, because he could not grasp the tormenting mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. But that same image we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans— It is the image of ungraspable phantom of life, and this is the key to it all. Now, whenever I say that I am in the habit of going to the sea whenever I begin to grow hazy about the eyes and begin to be over-conscious in my lungs, I do not mean to have it inferred that I ever go to sea as a passenger. For to go to sea as a passenger, you must needs have a purse, and a purse is but a rag unless you have something in it. Besides, passengers get seasick grow quarrelsome don't sleep at nights do not enjoy themselves as much as a general thing no i never go as a passenger nor though i am something of a salt do i ever go to sea as a commodore or a captain or a cook i abandon the glory and distinction of such offices to those who like them for my part i abominate all honorable respectable toils trials and tribulations of every kind whatsoever it is quite as much i can do as to take care of myself without taking care of ships, barks, brigs, schooners, and what not, And as for going as a cook, though I confess there is considerable glory in that, a cook being a sort of officer on ship aboard, yet somehow I never fancied broiling fowls, though once broiled, judiciously buttered, and judgmatically salted and peppered, there is no one who will speak more respectfully, not even, say, reverently, of a broiled fowl than I will. It is out of the idolatrous dotings of the Egyptians upon broiled ibis and roasted river horse that you will see the mummies of those creatures in their huge bake houses, the pyramids. No. When I go to sea, I go as a simple sailor, right before the mast, plumb down into the forecastle aloft there to the royal masthead. True, they rather order me about some and make me jump from spar to spar like a grasshopper in a May meadow. And at first this sort of thing is unpleasant enough— It touches one's sense of honor, particularly if you come of an old established family in the land, the Van Rensselaers, or Randolph, or Hard And more than all, if just previous to putting your hand to the tar pot, you have been lording it as a country schoolmaster, making the tallest boys stand in awe of you, the transition is a keen one, and I assure you, from the schoolmaster to the sailor, and requires a strong decoction of Seneca and the Stoics to enable you to grin and bear it. "'but even this wears off in time. "'What of it, if some old hunks of a sea captain "'order me to get a broom and sweep down the decks? "'What does this indignity amount to? weighed, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament. "'Do you think the archangel Gabriel "'thinks anything less of me "'because I promptly and respectfully "'obey the old hunks in the particular instance? "'Who ain't a slave? "'Tell me that. "'Well, then, "'however the old sea captains may order me about, "'however they thump and punch me about,' I have the satisfaction of knowing that it is all right, that everybody else is, one way or another, served in much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view, that is, and so the universal thump is passed around, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Again, I always go as a sailor, because they make a point of paying me for my trouble, where they never pay passengers a single penny that I've heard of. On the contrary, passengers themselves must pay— And there is all the difference in the world between paying and being paid. The act of paying is perhaps the most uncomfortable infliction that the two orchard thieves entailed upon us. But being paid, what will that compare with? The urbane activity with which a man receives money is really marvelous, considering that we so earnestly believe money to be the root of all earthly ills, and that on no account can a moneyed man enter heaven. Ah. How cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition. Finally, I always go to sea as a sailor because the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. For as in the world, headwinds are far more prevalent than winds from astern. That is, if you never violate Pythagorean's maxim. So, for the most part, the Commodore in the quarter deck gets his atmosphere at second hand from the sailors on the forecastle. He thinks he breathes it first, but not so. In much the same way do the commonality lead their leaders in many other ways. At the same time, that leader little suspects it. But wherefore it was that after having repeatedly smelt the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage. This is an invisible police officer of the fates, who has the constant surveillance of me, and secretly dogs me, and influences me in some unaccountable way. He can better answer than anyone else, and doubtless... My going on in the whaling voyage formed part of the grand program of Providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came up as a sort of brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have read something like this Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States, whaling voyage by one Ishmael, bloody battle in Afghanistan though I cannot tell why it was exactly that those stage managers, the Fates, put me down for the shabby part of a whaling voyage, when others were set down for magnificent parts of high tragedies and short and easy parts and genteel comedies and jolly parts and farces, though I cannot tell why this was exactly. Yet, now that I can recall all the circumstances, I think I can see a little into the spring and motives which being cunningly presented to me under vigorous disguises induced me to set about performing the part I did, besides cajoling me into the delusion that it was a choice resulting from my own unbiased free will and discriminating judgment. Chief among these motives was the overwhelming idea of the great whale himself. Such a portentous and mysterious monster roused all my curiosity. When the wild and distant seas, where he rolled his inland bulk, the undeliverable, nameless peril of the whale... These, with all the attending marvels of a thousand Patagonian sights and sounds, helped to sway me to my wish. With other men, perhaps such things would not have been inducements. But as for me, I am tormented with the everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Not ignoring what is good, I am quick to perceive a horror and could be social with it. Would they let me— since it is but well to be friendly on terms with inmates in a place one lodges in. But reasons of these, then, the whaling voyage was welcome. The great floodgates of the wonder world swung open, and in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose, two and two there floated into my inmost soul, endless processions of whale, and midmost of them, one grand hooded phantom, like a snow hill in the air."